0: Revelation chapter 4, verses 6b through 11. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created.
1: I read a stat recently that I have, not been able to get out of my head. And I wanted to share it with you guys. It's this, the sun, you know, like the the one out there that's like making things hot, that one, the sun makes up for 99.8% of the mass of our entire solar system. 99.8%. Like try to wrap your head around how big the sun is. Just think of our planet, like how much stuff is on our planet. Like all of the continents, the oceans, how deep they go, the big giant mountains that are out there. Like I've seen uh, seen the Matterhorn, the real one, spoiler alert, it's a lot bigger than the one at Disneyland. It's massive. The thing like tears through the clouds like this giant monolith. And it's not even one of the largest mountains in the world. We have so many of these just great, amazing wonders. So picture our planet really, really big. You can put 1.3 million of our planets into the sun. Isn't that wild? Like our solar system has, I just got these little stats cause I'm not gonna memorize them. Eight planets, many of them bigger than ours, 200 moons, Countless bodies of of things like dwarf planets, asteroids, uh, uh, comets, all of those things are crumbs in comparison to the sun, 99.8%. One smart scientist dude said that the solar system is basically the sun plus a bunch of debris. So it's basically like not right to even say that our sun is at the center of our solar system. It'd be more accurate to say our solar system is the sun and then just like a bunch of junk hanging out around it. And the crazy thing is that our solar system is one of 5,000 in the Milky Way. And our sun in the midst of like those 5,000 other suns and solar systems and stuff, he's not even a big fella. He's like average. He's mediocre, like me on the basketball court. Like, no, like, he's like, yeah, he's fine. You know, whatever. That's our sun. And our Milky Way galaxy is one of two trillion other galaxies in the universe. That's a lot of creation. And do you know what's at the center of all of creation? What's at the heart of it all? It's God. And this, the verses that we're reading today, is exactly what it looks like. If all of creation had a heartbeat, this would be its thunderous clap. And we have to admit that you and I do not have the mental faculty to truly comprehend the size of our own son, much less the depths of the picture that we are getting right here in these verses this afternoon. But we're going to try. We're going to give it our best shot. As we unpack this, I want us to pray that God would open our eyes to get a glimpse of his glory and of his majesty, to glimpse into what's at the center of all creation. So let's pray now for that to happen this afternoon. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we lift our hearts up to you, Lord. You are mighty and worthy of praise. And sure, we know that on one level, but we don't know. We do not know on another. And so we invite the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our eyes so that we can gaze just a little bit more clearly On your awesomeness. It's in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. By the way, before I go any further, can we give a round of applause? Congratulations to Devin and Ashley, who just got engaged. It's pretty cool. I know, I was surprised she said yes, too. Just kidding. Not true. Not true. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Okay, before we get into this Guillermo del Toro scene, if you know, you know, um, I need to lay a theological foundation for how we read apocalyptic literature. And Chris touched on it briefly last week, so I don't want to spend too much time there. But I think it's important to remind us that apocalyptic literature is written in a very different way. In order for us to understand it, it's valuable that we are asking the right kind of questions as we read it. So the first thing that we have to recognize, it's only two quick things, it'll take about three minutes. The first thing that we wanna recognize is that we ask, unconsciously almost, the question, will I literally see this? How literal should I take this text? And the second question that we ask, whether intentional or not, is when will this happen? We need to put on pause those kinds of questions in order to properly understand what God has for us in a text like this. Knowing how literal to take a text doesn't necessarily help us understand what the actual text wants to say. And a part of that reason simply is because literal and metaphorical language works really well together. And often literal and metaphorical language when working together helps us have a better understanding of reality. I'll give you an example. If I say, that kid is a ball of energy, I'm using literal language or I'm referring to something literal, a child, and I'm using a metaphor, a ball of energy. And the two are working together to give you a better understanding of the truth, of reality. In other words, asking how literal this image is potentially misses the point of the text. Imagine this. Imagine that... Someone walks up to Jesus and his disciples and is like, hey, I heard that story about the farmer and the two sons, you know, the prodigal one, man, that's wild. Hey, real quick, where do they live? I want to go meet them. What was their names? When did this happen? Like, you'd have to imagine the apostle would be like, it's, it's, No, like the point of the story is not that there was a father with two sons. The point of that story is that that God's reconciling love and willingness to forgive in our rebellion against him. And so to get too caught up in how literal that story is would potentially miss the point of the entire thing. So we have to be careful to kind of set aside that kind of question. Does that make sense? The second thing that we tend to ask is, when is this going to happen? And a part of the challenge with that is that apocalyptic literature does not treat time the same way that you and I treat time. See, you and I treat time in a linear, measurable way. We want to know what happened yesterday, what's going on today, and what our plans are in the future. That's how we look at time in a linear way. But apocalyptic literature does not treat time that way. Think about it like reading a book. Well, first off, if you were to ask the question, when is this going to happen? When are these creatures going to be singing? The answer to that question is not 2,000 years ago. It's not right now. It's not in the future. It's at all times or all at once. It is always happening. So think about it like reading a book. You start reading a book in chapter one, and you make your way through that book And at some point in the future, five years from now, you get to the last chapter, if you're like me, how long it takes to read a book. Now, did the last chapter pop into existence when you got there? Did it wait for you to arrive? No, the last chapter was already there. In some ways, it was already happening even when you were back in chapter one. And for that matter, as you're reading the last chapter, chapter one still kind of exists over here, right? That's how apocalyptic literature treats time. So when we approach it saying, okay, but when is this going to happen, before or after this and during that, it's starting to dilute what the, what the literature, what the language wants to tell you about reality. Are you guys following me? Okay. Let's get into it. So we got these weird looking creatures. I mentioned before, they're like, I just think of Guillermo de Toro when I, when I read that. Uh, And even John, like he's he's looking at these things and he's not even really sure what he's looking at. He like notice he uses the word it's like. It's like he's looking up and he's like, I don't know, man, it's kind of like a lion. I think I see an ox and like a human head, and there's an eagle, and there's a whole bunch of eyes and six wings. Like he's trying to figure out what the heck is happening. And here's the thing: these creatures in this scene, what it's supposed to represent is all of God's created and animate life from all of history. The animals that were there with Adam and Eve, to the pets that you have in your house right now, peeing on your carpet while you're here. Thank you, baby. To all of the future animals that will ever come into existence, they are all being represented by these creatures. Some theologians said, that the lion represents the nobility of God's creation, the ox, the strength of God's creation, the human, the wisdom, and the eagle, the swiftness. But more importantly, what is this representation of all of God's animate life doing? They are forever praising and worshiping God. They're doing exactly what they were created to do, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. They are singing, look at the verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see, creation knows something about our creator that we do not. Creation is aware of the reality, of a reality that we barely get a glimpse of, which is that God sovereignly rules on a throne and is worthy of praise. Not only that, but creation also bears its significance based off of its position before God's throne. And all of created order for all time has been singing this. This is why the psalmist will say that the rocks and the mountains will praise his names, that the heavens declare the glory of God. So my question to us this morning is do you declare the glory of God? Do you understand that he rules and reigns on heaven? that he is worthy of all praise? Does your life sing out like the rest of God's created order properly? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I think if we're being honest, the answer to that question is no, not all the time. And I think that there's at least two reasons why we don't always recognize that God is on the throne. The first is because we wanna be on the throne, because we act like we are on the throne. So often we act like we are the kings of our own kingdom, the determiners of our own destiny. And we try to set up these like fake faux thrones and live out our lives our way. We try to determine our own moral ethics and our own standard for living. Just recently, I ran into an old friend that I used to go to church with. Chris and I used to go to church with him, actually. And we like do the small talk thing like, oh, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Kids, married, family, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, okay, we used to go to church together. So I'm going to ask like, oh man, like what church is you and your family going to? And he's like, "Uh, we don't, we don't really go anymore. I'm like, oh really? He's like, yeah, you know, sometimes we stream, but we're just busy. We're just the kids, like the kids were bored and you know, we're just kind of busy. Besides, I think the kids get it. That's what he said. He closes it with like, besides, I think the kids get it. And our marriage is pretty good right now. And I'm like, so let me get this straight all of God's created order for all of eternity is screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you're like, you know, we're just kind of busy right now. Like, wrap your head around that. All of God's creation Every animal that ever was, that is currently alive now, and that whatever will be is singing forever and ever, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And this dude is like, yeah, but football season started, so we're going to stay home and watch that. Like, what? We're talking about 5,000 solar systems, two trillion galaxies singing, "Holy, holy, holy," is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to, and is to come. And this dude is treating God like some bolt-on option in his life that's only there to make things better when stuff goes bad. Does that make any sense at all? And the thing is, it doesn't. It's, it's not just like about attending ch- church or spending time in praise and worship it shows up in other areas of our lives too. How we treat each other, how we deal with stress, how we make plans, the way we look at sin, right? Like we even try to like gauge our own view of sin, whether that's determining sexuality or saying I want to spend my money my way or I want to use my time my way or I want to declare what sins are like really serious and what other sins are kind of like cute and funny. Think about it. Like, let's take alcohol for an example. God gave us alcohol for his glory and our good. It is a gift to us. And it brings him glory and honor when you have a glass of wine at dinner or you can uh, enjoy a finely crafted old-fashioned with friends. But what do we do? We finish the bottle, right? And when our buddies get drunk, it's like, oh, that's hilarious. Did you see... You know, I almost said Tim, and I was like, no, there's a Tim here. And then I almost said Jerry, and I'm like, no, there's a Jerry that goes to the church. I'm trying to come up with a name I don't have, and I don't have one. Uh, Bob. Thank you, baby. All right. Did you see Bob last night? Like, he got so wasted. Oh, there is a Bob. Anyways. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. We look at our friends, and we treat their drunkenness as though it's some sort of cute and humorous thing. We're like, man, that was hilarious. Or like we see one of those posts or a t-shirt where it's like, it's 8 a.m. on a Wednesday. You know what that means, right? Wine Wednesday, and we're like, ah, abusing alcohol is so funny. You see how like we tend to just manipulate the world around us to be like, okay, these sins are really, really bad, but this one is acceptable and kind of cute. And here's the thing, we know that we don't belong on the throne because anytime something doesn't go our way, anytime someone pushes against our authority, anytime life doesn't pan out the way we plan it to, anytime our sin catches up with us, we are so easily discouraged We experience loneliness, anxiety, conflict, or our joy is easily robbed from us. And whenever this happens, it's like reality trying to remind us that you're not God, that I do not have control of my own life, that I don't get to determine what sin is and is not. And the thing is, instead of of confessing, we tend to continue to turn to placebos. Here's what Edmund Clowney says. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or diluted lethargy. As we are, in turn, alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that we are trying to control our lives, and anytime something happens that reminds us that we're not in control, we tend to move towards those placebo effects whether it's drinking or social media or whatever it is to numb ourselves away from the reality that we are not in control of our lives i was listening to matt Chandler recently and he put it like this he said imagine guys imagine you come home one day and there's some dude at the dinner table with your wife and kids and he's like oh hey bro Don't worry about it. I got it from here. I'm going to be a better husband than you. I'm going to raise these kids better than you. Like, what? No, that's my job, right? Like, that's my responsibility. God gave me those children and that wife to steward, and no one else fits that role besides me because that's what God ordained. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would do is I'd be calling, like, Brian or something and be like, hey, how would you hide a dead body? Asking for a friend. But seriously, like, ladies, imagine you come home and some like Karen's coming out of the shower with one of your towels wrapped around her head. Tell me you wouldn't drag her out, right? Because that's your role. But in the same way, we do that with God's throne. We try to sit in it, we try to act like that's our responsibility, our job, our role with our own lives. And what we're gonna see later is that there's a calling to cast down our pathetic little crowns, step off our pretend little thrones, and join the rest of creation by singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The first reason why we don't praise him this way is because we want to be our own gods. But the second reason why I think we don't praise him often enough in this way is simply because our imaginations aren't big enough. Revelation four, this scene here, is more real than the chairs that you guys are sitting in, yet we don't believe that to be true. We don't live as though it is a constant reality in our lives, why? someone might say well that's because of science like science has made it hard to believe in anything transcendent most people would 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 say like science has not gone as far as disproving god but certainly it's taken away the mystery of the world around us but i don't know if that's entirely the case and charles taylor actually doesn't either here's what he says now the story of this train Excuse me, now the story of this change, he's talking about us losing a sense of wonder and imagination for the world around us. The story of this change is often told one, at least a part of it, of how the biblical cosmology was replaced by the march of science in the form of evolutionary theory. This is an important component. Scientific discovery did indeed play a salient role, even decisive role in the changeover. My problem with this story is that it tells how one theory displaced another, whereas what I'm interested in is how our sense of things, our cosmic imaginary, in the other words, our whole background understanding and feel of the world has been transformed. What Charles Taylor is saying here is that we've lost a sense of wonder for the world around us, and he calls it a cosmic imaginary. And he believes that our imaginations play a key role in helping us understand the world around us. Now we think of, when I say imagination, you may think like, oh, so pretending. But imagination is not about pretending. It's not about like pausing disbelief or doubt. J.R.R. Tolkien would say that having a strong imagination is having the ability to enter into another world so that you can better understand the world that you actually live in. So think about it like this. Think about it like cultural immersion. If I wanted to understand better Japanese culture, it would not be enough for me to hop online and like Google search a bunch of data facts about Japanese culture and then look at a bunch of pictures. In order for me to truly understand Japanese culture, I would have to immerse myself into that culture, spend time into that culture so that I can better understand that world And interestingly, when I would come back into our Western culture, and if anybody's ever traveled overseas for any extended period of time, you know what this is like. When you come back into your own culture, you see your world very differently. Maybe you appreciate things that you didn't otherwise appreciate or notice, or maybe you're a little critical of things that you didn't otherwise notice. You see, the ability to immerse yourself into another world helps you better understand the world that you're in. Our imaginations have been given to us by God to better understand the world around us. Or think about love. I know I used this uh, before, but it's helpful to me. If you distilled love down to just the natural order of things, then there's no romance. Like for you single single ladies, I, that song's just... For you single men and women in the room, the next time somebody asks you out on the date, it's not because they're wooed by you, like if there's no such thing as imagination, then basically here's what you would say. When I look at you, my neurons and synapses misfire in my brain, indicating to me an outdated biological need to procreate. Does that explain love? No chance that explains love. In order for us to understand love, what do we need? We need poets. We need musicians, we need stories, and we need the scriptures. We need these things, we need an imagination to help us understand the rapturous feeling of being in love. You see, our lack of belief in this cosmic reality is not a lack of knowledge or scientific skepticism. It's a lack of imagination. And the good news is, our world is much more enchanted than we live it to be. Which leads to this question, how can we grow stronger imaginations? How can we get glimpses of heaven on earth? And I think there's at least four ways in which we can have a stronger imagination. The first is with stories. A good story will help you better understand the world around you. I think it was C.S. Lewis said that the thing that makes all good stories good stories is that they point to the one true story of God and his saving grace. See, when we read these stories and these moments tug at our hearts, whether it's Harry Potter dying for his friends or Gandalf falling to the Balrog to free or to, to save his companions, Like those moments in these stories pull at our hearts because they're speaking about some truth that we otherwise couldn't understand. Holly Ordway said it like this, good stories in poetry help us to see more clearly when we close the book and re-enter ordinary life. So we can strengthen our imaginations and get a better glimpse of heaven through story. The second way we can do that is through music. Music is a gift from God that helps us uh, uh, have enrapturing experiences. When we worship through song rightly, it engages our hearts and minds and bodies, and it fuels our imagination and give gives us a glimpse of heaven. Full confession, when I first became a Christian, which was in my like early 20s, I've said this before, the two first thoughts that I had when I realized I was a Christian is, I can't stand Christians because they're weird. I, I love them now, but they are still weird. Uh, and Christian music isn't very strong isn't very good. And I remember the, one of the first retreats that I got to go to was at Forest Home. I think Chris was there. And the music was playing and there was this like line in the song, you've probably heard it before, where it goes, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sins upon that cross. Now I had heard that song a 100 times over there. There's nothing special about that song. But in that moment, Before you knew it, I had like tears running down my eyes and my hands were up and I was singing and praising God for the first time with my whole self. And you could say that in that moment, I had a better glimpse of heaven and God's love for me. The third way that we can increase our imagination and get a better glimpse of heaven is through creation, spending time in God's created order. And fourth, the last way, is through sex. At least my wife likes to say it, it reminds her of heaven. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know why I say stuff like that. I apologize. <laughs> well, <laughs> All right, anyway. Sex is not just for procreation. The Song of Solomon intentionally using garden imagery to talk about the pleasures of it. The garden... Adam and Eve, naked and unafraid, that is meant to elude ideas of heaven on earth. Marital, consensual, and mutual pleasing sex is a gift from God, and when we experience it rightly, it's meant to tell us something about heaven. Some of you are like, this is the best sermon he's ever preached. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says that heaven and earth are actually right next to each other, They're not as far as we think they are. And the buffer between the two tends to get thin when we experience enchanted and transcendent moments like this. And when those moments are at their height, that layer gets so thin that heaven and earth actually touch. They became one. And I think our jobs as Christians is to seek out moments to live in the space between heaven and earth. Or as Jesus said, to have heaven come down on, to have, Heaven come down on earth as it is in heaven. So we don't believe it to be true because we wanna be uh, our own gods and we don't believe it to be true because our imaginations are not strong enough. We aren't very good at recognizing God on his throne. It's a part of our fallen nature. And at the end of the day, we're kind of last to the party. Like all of creation is singing praises to God And we come in late to the party. Look what it says in the next verse. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. In the same way that the heavenly creatures represent God's creation, these 24 elders represent all of God's people. From the patriarchs of the faith, like King David, to uh, Jesus' disciples, to you and I in this room right now, these people are representation of God's chosen people. And it's interesting because we have a different relationship with God than everything else because our relationship ultimately starts with rebellion. Rebellion. We're the only part of creation that God had to remove himself from that throne. Imagine that. Removing himself from that throne, subjecting himself to human futility, dying on the cross and bringing us back so that we can experience something wonderful like this. It is. It's wild to me to think that God would leave that space for you and I. We're going to close with this. I mentioned Harry Potter earlier. For those of you who have read the book, if you haven't, it's your fault. Uh, Harry starts out as like this young kid living in a muggle world. A muggle is simply somebody who does not realize that magic or wizards exist, right? And Larry, Larry, who's Larry? (laughs) Harry's life just feels like a bunch of random things, a bunch of meaningless acts one after another. His parents dying seems like a meaningless act. Uh, His weird neighbor seems meaningless. All of these moments in his life seem somewhat meaningless and he has no way of explaining things. But what happens is that Harry is introduced to the wizarding world and he starts to see the world more clearly. Now all of a sudden the death of his parents has meaning. It's a part of a big story. Now all of a sudden, his weird neighbor isn't just weird, but she has a connection to the wizarding world, right? Harry's world opens up and he sees it for what it is. He was blind and now he can see. And interestingly enough, where is it that he goes to enter into the wizarding world? King's Cross Station. Not in no relation to our church name. But here's the point when we see our world through the lens of the cross of Christ, it opens up our eyes and helps us realize how enchanted things are. And like Harry, we go from thinking our life is meaningless and we're here to just live and die to realizing that we are a part of a story a grand and big and beautiful story that goes on forever and ever. And when that happens, like the 24 elders, it invites us to lay down our pathetic little crowns and to sing with them and for the rest of creation these words. And we're gonna close with this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Amen.